Thank you, Father. And uh, Lord God, this is our 41st sermon from the Revelation. And the Revelation is one incredible vision. And uh, so, Lord God, I pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would bring the pieces together in our hearts. And I especially pray for those that are new, because they'll get confused, that your Spirit would um, help them, help all of us to see you, because it all means you. It's the revelation of Jesus. So Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd help us to see you and welcome you. It's Advent, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Pastor Walter Wangren wrote the following. The woman sitting before me has a problem so difficult to state that she twists her fingers in silence. She has come alone and looks lonely. I'm sorry, she says, I, I, I just don't know how to say it. Take your time, I say. She smiles an apologetic smile. He, he, she says, she's referring to her absent husband. The problem is in their marriage. Whenever we... Um, Make love, she says, dropping her eyes. As though she has just made up her mind, she says the sentence smoothly. Whenever we make love, he laughs. She looks up, her eyes question me. At you, I ask? He, he laughs at you? N no, no, oh, oh no, no. Now she's concerned that I don't misunderstand. No, he laughs for joy. This is what she thinks the, the problem is her husband's pleasure at entering her. He laughs like a boy at a new joke. The, the tears run down his cheeks and, and he kisses her. Does the noise distract you, I ask? I, I don't think so, says the woman. We're talking about her feelings now. So she drops her eyes again, twists her fingers. I, she whispers, blessing. I, I sort of giggle with him. He's having so much. Her, her poor face blazes with embarrassment. Her voice falls to a distant, distant whisper. So much fun, you know. But that isn't right. Is, isn't he being, I don't know, disrespectful, like, like laughing in church? And then when I laugh too, I feel so guilty. She feels shame. Some of you feel it right now. We each have a deep thirst that we often cover up and then deny. We try to satiate the thirst with all manner of things that don't satisfy, things that make us even more thirsty. And then in self-conscious fear, we refuse to acknowledge that ever-increasing thirst. We feel shame. Maybe it's alcohol. It satisfies for a few hours and then makes us even more thirsty, addicted and unsatisfied and ashamed. Maybe it's pornography, adultery, greed, or just old-fashioned power. It seems to complete you for, for a, a moment, but it transforms you into a beast instead of a man or a harlot instead of a bride. Maybe we try to satiate the thirst with our own good deeds, and that just turns it turns us into, into Pharisees that crucify the Christ 
in order to justify ourselves. In Genesis 2, God makes humanity, and then he says this, it is not good that the Adam, Ha-Adam, is alone. And yet Adam is alone in the presence of God, who is love. That means that the Adam doesn't know that love is God and God is his helper, our husband, our azer in Hebrew. Over and over in the Old Testament, we read that God, El in Hebrew, is our helper, Azer in Hebrew. Eliezer means God is our helper. Never is a woman said to be a man's Azer. Or a man said to be a woman's Azer. Adam, as male and female, is a reference pointing to our Azer, the helper made fit for humanity. So get the picture, Adam is alone in the presence of God because Adam is not thirsty for communion with God. He does not know the love that, that is God. He does not know that love is good, Genesis 2.21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep, tardemah, to fall upon the Adam, upon humanity. I'm not entirely sure what to make of this, but we really don't read anything about God waking the Adam from this tardema, this deep sleep, until Isaiah prophesies that God will wake Jerusalem. Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And then Isaiah goes on to prophesy the most incredible things about Jerusalem, all which we will now see and read at the end of the Revelation. Paul quotes Isaiah in Ephesians 5 saying this, anything exposed to the light becomes light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. The Bible talks as if we're all still asleep. And this entire fallen world is like a nightmare, a nightmare that we're having as God performs surgery upon our souls. Adam is not thirsty for love, who is our God, and so God puts the Adam to sleep, and from his bleeding side, he forms Eve. Adam is thirsty for Eve, and Eve is thirsty for Adam. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Ephesians 5, Paul quotes this verse, and then he writes this, this mystery is a profound one, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Paul taught that Christ is the eschatos Adam, the ultimate Adam, and we are his bride. Adam and Eve are thirsty for each other, and God will create a thirst within humanity for himself. In the middle of the garden, there's a tree. It's either two trees in one spot that look just the same, or it's one tree that to us appears to be two. On the tree is the judgment of God. On the tree is the knowledge of the good, and God alone is good. Uh, on the tree is life. It's the tree of life, and Jesus is the life. Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty, more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. The serpent, the ancient dragon, tempts Eve. She's a picture of the bride who is us. She sees that the fruit on the tree is good for food, 
But she doesn't see that the good in flesh, who is the life, who hangs on the tree, is her helper. Scripture calls him the eschatos Adam, the last Adam. Well, Eve takes the fruit and she gives some to the first Adam, Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They covered that place on their body where they would experience communion in the covenant of marriage producing life. They covered that place where they would complete each other and they covered that place where they would thirst for each other, that place that was to teach them of their thirst for God. Genesis 3, 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In the presence of the Lord there is fullness of joy, writes David. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. Pastor went to visit one of his prisoners. Rang the doorbell. No one came to the door for quite a while. Finally, he took out his card, and he wrote Revelation 3.20 on the back, slipped it under the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Two days later, the pastor received his calling card back in an envelope with this note attached to it, Genesis 3.10. I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. <laughs> it was like about a year ago that we preached on Revelation uh, 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Why don't we open the door? Why don't we invite him in? He tells us what he wants. I will come in to him and, and eat with him and him with me. He wants communion. Why don't we invite him in to fill every dark corner of our souls so every breath that we take is the ecstasy of unadulterated, passionate, and free surrender? Why don't we invite him in? Maybe because we think he's like the pastor, you know? Making house calls. Maybe, maybe we think he's a thief in the night when in fact he's the bridegroom, and we're the bride. And maybe we can't imagine that he's actually attracted to the very place that we want to hide. Maybe we can't imagine that he actually longs to fill that very place with his very presence, and he is love. Why don't we invite him in? Because of shame. And we have reason for shame. We took knowledge of the good from the tree. We take knowledge of the good so we can take good things and make ourselves in the image of God. Alcohol is a good thing. Anything created by God is a good thing, but, but it's the way we take it that makes it a bad thing. Gold, jewels, houses, cars are all good things, but the way we take them makes them bad things. Sex is a good thing, but the way we take it can make it the worst thing. We've all tried to satiate our thirst for God with things and turn those things into idols. We've taken good things, and even worse, we've taken the good as a thing. 
When we take the knowledge of the good in order to make ourselves in the image of God, we don't receive the good as the life that he is. We take the life of the good as a law which reveals we're dead. We crucify the good, take the life of the good, and then we perceive his presence as nothing but condemnation and criticism. That's the story of Israel, Judah and Jerusalem. Through the law, God reveals, Israel, you've become a beast. Jerusalem, you've become a whore. But it only drives Jerusalem, it drives Jerusalem, it drives her deeper and deeper into the dark, deeper into the closet, and she will not open the door and let him in. Husbands, you know that if you really want to make love to your wife, criticism is not the way to make that happen. <laughs> she may commune with you because it's her duty. She may honor you with her lips, but her heart will be far from you. Jesus said this people, Jerusalem honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He was quoting Isaiah, who goes on to say, Therefore, I will again do marvelous things with this people. Hosea 2.14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, romance her, entice her, bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her vineyards. There I will make the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, a door of hope. Jesus is the door. His broken flesh is the veil that's torn in this wilderness world. He's the door that brings us home to ourselves, to our God and all things with him. Ezekiel 16, God speaks to his whoring bride Jerusalem saying, Yet I will establish with you an everlasting covenant, an eternal covenant, that you may be confounded when I forgive you all that you have done when I forgive you, atone for you. Okay, so if you didn't follow all of that, I think this is what I'm saying. I'm saying that the Spirit of God whispers to you from behind the veil in the tabernacle of your soul. He whispers, just peek outside your city walls. Just glance over the city gate. You'll see a tree in a garden, and you'll see a man standing at your door he has wounds on his body that match the wounds in your soul, and he has a wound in his side that will remind you of home. Don't run from him. Listen to him. This is what he says to you. You took my life, but from the foundation of the world I have given you my life. You sinned against me, but I have always been grace to you. You dreamt that you were your own creator, savior, and redeemer. You've dreamt that you are your own helper. You've dreamt that you're a harlot, but now awake and look into my eyes. You are not a harlot. You're my bride. And now would you open the door? Now would you drink from my fountain? Would you thirst for me as I have always thirsted for you? Once you did not know, but now you do know, it's not good for you to be alone. And I am your helper. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and I will give you light. I am the light, and I make all things new.
Revelation 21.1 Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, new home, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Last week we began to preach on this text and I titled the sermon, You Can Go Home. I made the point that home is being at home with I am at home in you. I talked about my dad and my home in Littleton growing up and I mentioned my bride coming down the aisle and this morning I need to tell you that home for me is Susan. I mean that in a very physical sort of way. I also mean it in an emotional, psychological, and theological sort of way. I rest in her. And I think this is where I belong. John writes that he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. Jesus is her husband. The word translated adorned is cosmeo in Greek. It's where we get our word cosmetics. Revelation 19, we read this. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her, given to her, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of, of the saints. In John's day, when a young man wanted to marry a young woman, he would prepare a covenant and he would present it to the young woman's father along with the bride price, what the young man would pay the father as compensation for losing his daughter. Jesus pays for us with his life. The young man would then pour a cup of wine, which represented a blood covenant. The life is in the blood. If the girl would drink from the cup, the wedding was sealed and they were engaged. At that point, the young man would go to prepare a place for her in his father's house. It was the custom that he would come for her at an unexpected hour and take her to her new home where they would consummate the, the wedding and everyone would celebrate for an entire week. While he was preparing a place for her, she would be using the gifts that he had given her and that he was sending to her. Uh, he would be using those gifts, that money, to prepare herself as a place for him. She used his gifts to purchase fine linen, bright and pure, and cosmetics, perfume and oil and flowers, with which she would adorn herself for him. And you see, it all sent this message. I'm thirsty for you, my groom. When my bride walked down the aisle, she was clothed in fine linen. 
or rayon or nylon or something like that. But it was white and bright and, and pure. And she had her hair all done up in flowers and her cosmetics were just right. It all meant that she was thirsty for me. And in a very, very real way, I purchased that thirst for me with my love for her. I had romanced her for five and a half years and I had made her thirsty. I'd waited for five and a half years. Not perfectly. I had, we had, had waited. We waited because of my neurotic desire to make myself good, which really isn't good, but bad. We waited because I wanted to make myself good, but also because I had simply come to trust that God is good. And you see, that is the good. But that's not to my credit. That was a gift that he had given to me. I'm just pointing out that I was thirsty for her, and her adornment said, Peter, I am thirsty for you. And that's what the groom wants. I wasn't thinking about cake as I watched her walk down the aisle. I was thirsty for her and just her, hidden under all that adornment. You know, Scripture says that we are to be clothed with Christ. He is our adornment. I was thirsty for her without any adornment but me. I was thirsty for her and a particular part of her, that very part of her that she had hidden from everyone else in shame. That very place in which she felt incomplete, that very spot which looks like a wound left from the day that God made humanity male and female, that very place where I had been made fit for her and her for me. I longed to fill that empty place in herself with myself. This mystery is a profound one. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, Christ and his church, which is you, his bride. Now, even as I'm preaching this, some of you feel shame, intense shame, and you're starting to hide. Male or female, you're all the bride of Christ, and you each have an empty place. And you've tried to fill that place with all sorts of things and just become more and more and more aware that it's still empty. I've tried to fill the empty place in me with Susan. Susan is good and Susan's body is a sign. But something inside of Susan is the substance. I cannot take it as a possession. I have to receive it as a gift. Wine is a sign. The spirit of Christ is the substance. All creation is a sign. The creator is the substance. Signs fade and grow old, but the substance is eternal. We argue about legitimate and illegitimate signs. Like if and when a photograph or a piece of art turns into pornography. If and when a romance novel turns into coveting your neighbor's husband or whether or not a divorced person can remarry and still reflect the sign or whether or not homosexuality can reflect the sign. Scholars debate just what the biblical word means. Do they, do they mean pederastry and idolatry, any same-sex attraction or something in between? And what about singleness? Jesus was single, but does he thirst for a bride? We argue about the signs, and I don't know all the answers to the questions I just asked. But I do know that the presence of God is a substance. 
And I do know that we're all thirsty for communion. And I do know that we're all thirsty for communion in that very place that you were just now tempted to hide. From Jesus. Your bridegroom. So just stop and listen for a minute. Maybe Jesus is attracted to that very spot in you. And maybe his greatest sorrow is that you would hide it from him. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong objectively. If you hide it from him, it's evil. And so his presence, it, it burns like, like fire. Shame is like that, writes C.S. Lewis. If you will accept it, if you will drink the cup to the bottom, you will find it very nourishing. But try to do anything else with it, and it's called. In the same way, if we confess our confusion, lies, and decay, those empty places, you see, I think they will reveal the way, the truth, and the life. But not as something we've earned, but as, as the thing that they truly are, the grace of God, which is the presence of God, which is Jesus at his right hand, our pleasures forevermore. Now, just remember how terrified I was of my nakedness as, as a child you know, older than three or four, after I had gained the knowledge of good and evil. I remember how terrified I was of my nakedness as a child, and then how amazed I was that someone as beautiful as Susan would actually be attracted, even thirst, for the very place that I had always hidden in shame. What a delightful discovery. Well, John saw the New Jerusalem coming down. As a bride adorned, cosmeo for her husband, it means she's thirsty. Cosmeo comes from cosmos. It's the idea that God orders and beautifies his creation. As we've seen, God will fill, this is what Scripture says, God will fill all things with himself. He will fill every eon, every, every age with his meaning, his logos, and he will fill every moment of your life with himself. He saves you, not just in three dimensions, but at least four. He transforms all your moments, past, present, and future, and in that way, he makes you, he makes you in his image. As we've learned, we each have an old man that we think we have created with our judgments. It is who I am not. Uh, that man is my nightmare. <laughs> It's the result of thinking that I could make myself in the image of God by taking knowledge of good and evil from the, uh, from the tree, taking the good and then applying it to my life and the strength of my own flesh. We each have an old man and we each have a new and eternal man that God has created with his judgment. He is actually God's judgment. He is somehow Christ in me. He is the good. He is the life. Not taken, but given. Even forgiven from the foundation of the world. You know, the moment you confess your old man, he becomes your new man or is revealed as the new man. The moment you confess your lies, they become a beautiful testimony, right? To what? Truth. And truth that's freely given as grace. The moment you confess you're lost, you're most found by the way. The moment you confess that you're dead, it's the life himself rising within you. The moment you confess your old man, the new man is revealed. The new man is the way, the truth, and the life. The new man is Christ in you. This is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, right, Paul? 
writes Paul, Christ in you. To the woman at the well who had six men and to whom Jesus was the seventh man, the eschatos Adam, Jesus said, if you would ask of me, I would give you a fountain of living water welling up from inside of you to eternal life. When we ask him, he fills us with himself and his eternal life becomes our eternal life in the very place we once experienced temporal death in this world of illusion. And you know this, don't you? At least those of you that are over 40, 50, the signs, the signs get old and fade, but remember the substance is eternal. I'm saying that God in Christ Jesus, he, he wants us. He said to the woman, if you ask of me, God in Christ Jesus wants us to agree with our own creation. Let me say that again. I think God in Christ Jesus wants us to agree with our own creation the way a bride agrees to her honeymoon on the night of her wedding. He wants us to agree. Not only once at camp in junior high. He wants us to agree in every moment of our space and time, past, present, and future, that every moment would be a moment of ecstatic, passionate, and free communion, constantly willing what we want and wanting what we will, that everywhere and every when we would be entirely at home with him at home in us, that we would thirst for him as he is always thirst for us, that we would love love forever in his image. His image. Not because we stole his identity, but because we received his identity as a bride. I mean, imagine if Susan came down the aisle that day. Imagine if she came down that aisle that day all those years ago looking just like me, dressed in clothes that maybe she had stolen from me. And when the minister said, do you take this man? She said, take this man. I am this man. And then she produced a fake ID saying that she was Peter Hyatt, born August 5th, 1961. To steal your identity is death and sin, but to receive it as salvation by grace through faith, that is salvation. Salvation is receiving your identity by grace through faith, and faith is thirst for your helper. Revelation 21, 2. Then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, look, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Look, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes, nikao, he who conquers, shall inherit all things. Remember this whole vision has been begging this question, how do we conquer? The thirsty conquer and inherit all things. Thirsty for what? Thirsty for the fountain of the water of life. And Jesus, our bridegroom, is the life. This is the victory that conquers the world. Our faith, writes John in 1 John. See what that means? It means that faith is thirst. And so, of course, the bridegroom wants faith. 
and arranges all things to grow faith. You know, sometimes I wonder if this whole God and Jesus thing is, is really working, but if they want thirst, it's working. Have you become thirsty for the way, the truth, and the life? Your bridegroom is the way, the truth, and the life, and all for free. Your bridegroom is grace. Have you yet become thirsty for grace? Grace is relentless love, and he's making you thirsty. Sometimes I wonder, you know, why does God do miracles and then not do miracles? If you've ever seen a real miracle, this is the feeling that it just produces. God, why don't you do this all the time? He does miracles and he doesn't do miracles. He gives us a taste and then he makes us hungry. He gives us a sip and then he leads us out into the wilderness. What's he doing? He's making us thirsty. The adulterous generation is thirsty for his signs, but the bride is thirsty for him. He's the substance. He withholds his glory and power, so I wouldn't try to abuse, try to, try to rape his person. And he withholds his glory and power because he refuses to abuse me. He refuses to take me against my will, and so he romances my will until I surrender my will to, to his will, until I give in uh, to the thirst, that thirst for him. That's the glory and the power of love. Love creates all things, and even that thirst for himself called faith. Do you remember what Jesus said as he hung on the tree in the garden just outside the walls of Jerusalem? I thirst. All Judah could give him was vinegar, sour wine. He cried, I thirst, and then it is finished and delivered up his spirit. And that spirit fell on a Roman centurion who dropped to his knees and said, surely this was the Son of God. That spirit fell on him and he began to worship. He was thirsty. He drank and he was drunk by love. That spirit fell on his disciples in the old Jerusalem on Pentecost and they began to worship. They were thirsty. They drank and people thought they thought they were drunk. They, they drank and they were drunk by and with love. Within a generation, the walls of old Jerusalem came tumbling down. John saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. She's made of people that are thirsty. She's made of people that are thirsty for grace. We're saved by grace through thirst, a thirst for grace called faith. You know this. Your heart knows this. Two weeks ago, Carl preached this message, and he had all of us, remember, write down on a piece of paper, write this sentence. This was the sentence, and then we were supposed to finish it. Because of grace, I am free from the shame of, and then we were to fill in the blank. He then read our responses, things like rejection, pornography, addiction, anxiety, despair, etc., etc. When Carl would read a slip of paper, remember that two weeks ago? When Carl would read a slip of paper, was there something in you that just wanted to find that person that wrote down that response, hug them, and say to them, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I love you, and it will be okay. That thing in you is Jesus. And we are his bride, his, his body. 
the sanctuary where we celebrate communion in the covenant of grace. You see, you shouldn't just surrender your shame to anyone. Every one of those confessions could have easily been abused. You must surrender your shame to Jesus who sees it as the treasure that it is. The pearl of great price. A piece of dirt around which he He covers it with himself, and he is grace. There was one slip of paper that took my breath away. It read, because of grace, I'm free from the shame of thinking I'm better than others. I wanted to find that person, wash their feet, and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for confessing it for all of us. Do you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? The way Jesus tells the story, it makes it rather clear that the rich man is Judah, who, with the five brothers, father of the Jews, and Jesus, remember, was a Jew. And the poor man was a guy named Eliezer, Abraham's servant, who remember Eliezer in the story, uh, or Eliezer, uh, the guy in the story, ends up in Abraham's bosom. Eliezer was a Gentile who lost what he would have inherited because Abraham had a son and became the father of Israel and the Jews. Eliezer is the Hebrew name for Lazarus. El means God, Azer means help. Lazarus means God is our helper. You may also remember that Judah, the rich man, ends up on the other side of a chasm, tormented by a flame. He seems to have thought that he had justified himself, and so he didn't need grace, and he looked down on Lazarus. He thought he was better than Lazarus, and so he was not saved. The church is the Israel of God. And sometimes I sincerely fear that we're not saved, and that we still need to be saved, for to be saved is to be thirsty for grace. If you've experienced much grace, you'll, you'll want grace for all. You'll be thirsty for God to make all things new. Behold, I make all things new, verse 6. And he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes, Nikao, he who conquers, shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, pornos, whores, and, and, and whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and fail which is the second death, the death of death. Cowards must not be thirsty enough for love because perfect love casts out fear. Unbelief is unthirst. Perhaps they're not thirsty because they're full of themselves. The murderers are not thirsty. They're not thirsty for what? The life. The liars are not thirsty for the truth, or at least much truth. Whores and whoremongers are not thirsty for love that cannot be bought. That's, that's free. Idolaters are not thirsty for Yahweh. I am that I am. Judah was not thirsty for Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. Jesus. And the rich man sure wasn't thirsty for Jesus in Lazarus. He wasn't thirsty for God is our help. Eliezer. Judah and Jerusalem believed that they had justified themselves. Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, did we not do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I, I, never, I never knew you. Jesus does not know your false self because it is who you are not. 
But the moment you surrender the false self and truth, you become the new self by grace. So in the outer darkness at the edge of the eternal fire that surrounds Jerusalem, the rich man gets thirsty. And Jesus said to him who thirsts, I will give of the fountain of the water of life without payment. Lazarus can't cross the chasm, but on the cross, Jesus, the king of the Jews, destroyed the chasm. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill laid low. When Jerusalem sees him as he is, Zechariah 13, a fountain is opened within her, and she opens her gates, and the king of glory comes in. He will save the whole house of Israel, including Judah. He will save all that have fallen asleep in Adam. He will create in all of us a thirst for him. But you are particularly blessed if he has created within you a thirst for, for him right now. <laughs> Sometimes I, I complain about the thirst. I do. It's almost painful. But I need to be grateful for the thirst. I didn't create it. But it is creating me because I am thirsty. I'm thirsty for the way, the truth, and the life to, to fill all the lost, the liars and the murderers, with himself. I'm thirsty to hear the addicted, confused, and insane join the chorus of praise. Why? Because the logos of God, the logic of love, had filled them with new songs. I'm thirsty to see every empty void of sin filled with the liquid gold of grace. I'm thirsty to see Adolf Hitler washing the feet of six million Jews. Because he wants to. Because it's his heart's deepest desire. And I'm thirsty to see six million Jews placing a crown upon his head because they recognize in him their king, the king of the Jews who conquers all things, including Hitler and Judas. I'm thirsty to see Jesus make all things new. And if you're not thirsty, I pray for your soul. that the king would make it new and make mine new too. Because you see, I'm thirsty, but I'm not thirsty enough. I'm thirsty until some car cuts me off in traffic. Somebody criticizes my sermon. Someone really needs my help when I just rather watch TV. See, a thirst for grace will manifest as deeds of grace, like a beautiful white wedding gown. Over the years, Susan and I have prayed for several women that have been ritually abused. It's wild, and it's really weird, and yet it's all strangely familiar, for we are all Eve, and we have all been abused by the ancient dragon. Seventeen years ago, when I first preached on this text, we were praying for a friend who, 40 years before, had been ritually wed, ritually wed to Satan, and literally imprisoned in a closet. We discovered that she was delivered from evil by seeing Jesus in every moment of her space and time. He would reveal himself in her memories. 
he had always been there. He'd always been there. She and Susan both would see him in visions, and the manifestation of his presence, the epiphany of his parousia in all those places of shame would transform those places of shame into the gospel of grace, stories of his relentless love for her everywhere and every when, and it would set her free from oppression, fear, and despair. In these visions, Jesus would often hold up a mirror. She had been sold as a harlot for a time. But in the mirror, she could see that she was Christ's bride for all eternity. She would see herself adorned as a bride for her bridegroom. At one point, she bought a wedding dress. We had her hang it on on her door, her bedroom door. When she did and she looked at the dress, the ancient serpent could not enter. And it wasn't the dress. It was her thirst, her thirst for the bridegroom, which is a gift from the bridegroom, which is the presence of his spirit. To the thirsty, the one who conquers, I will be his God and he will inherit all things, says Jesus. So I'm just saying, bride of Christ, don't be a foolish virgin. Know what it is that the bridegroom wants. He wants a bride that's thirsty for him and for him alone. He doesn't want a bride that wraps herself in flannel and makes him some tea. He wants a bride that dances into the bridal chamber and gladly, boldly, freely, lavishly surrenders her shame. He wants a bride that thirsts for him as he has always thirsted for her. And so on that night, which was the beginning of that day, in old Jerusalem he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant. It's an eternal covenant. It's a marriage covenant. This cup is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. So, are you thirsty? Or are you offended? Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, well, that wasn't very much of a Christmas sermon. If so, you appear to have forgotten just where it is that babies come from. In all of Israel, this may have been the place of greatest shame, a food trough in a stable just outside the walls of Jerusalem in Bethlehem. Jesus was born to a poor, unwed teenage uh, peasant girl and placed in a manger. Do you know there are four women that Matthew mentions in Jesus' family tree? The first one is a woman named Tamar who uh, dressed like a prostitute. She played uh, the harlot in order to get her father-in-law Judah to give her his seed. The second 
is uh, a, a, a woman named Rahab. Remember Rahab? We talked about her. She's a Canaanite prostitute from inside the walls of the city of, Jake, of, of Jericho. The third is Ruth, a desolate woman from Israel's ancient enemy Moab. The fourth is Bathsheba who committed adultery with David and, and David who then murdered her husband Uriah. And, and then comes Mary. And all that we really know of Mary is that she was thirsty. Thirsty for the presence of God, and so she prayed, May it be unto me according to your word. This is God's word, and he's attracted to you, even in, especially in that place where you feel shame. You know that place. Maybe it's several places. So let's give it to him. Would you close your eyes? Just close your eyes. And think of that place. That place is whatever you want to hide from Jesus. Now just say this in your heart. Jesus, you're my helper. And so I give you my shame. So God's love for you, in your place of shame, makes you beautiful. Or you're not beautiful. But you are beautiful. And so Jesus holds up a mirror. What you see in his mirror of grace, the gospel, is not wishful thinking. It's eternal. So believe the gospel in Jesus' name. And now, Lord God, I want to pray this because I know that when I walk out of here, I'll feel shame about this sermon. And Lord God, when my friends walk out of here, they may be shame, feeling shame about all sorts of things. So. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you cover us, and I ask that you would now cover us right now as we walk. We walk from um, this sanctuary where we experience communion with you. I pray that you would cover us with your righteousness, that you would cover us with yourself. I pray that you would cover us with fine linen, bright and pure, and I thank you that the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, and I thank you that the fine linen is also armor. And so, Lord God, we take the helmet of salvation, the breastplate, of righteousness, it's your righteousness. We gird our loins with truth, and you are the truth, and we shod our feet with equipment, the gospel of peace, and you are peace, and we take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, which is you, and we hold up the shield of faith to quench the flaming darts of the evil one. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that the one who thirsts conquers, because you have given them 
the water of life without price. In Jesus' name, amen.